This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Johnson & Johnson's use of fetal cells to make its COVID-19 vaccine recently drew concerns from some Catholic leaders. Could this spark resistance to taking the shot? Joining me is Robert Ayafola, Bloomberg Law reporter. So tell us about the J&J vaccine. Yeah, so unlike uh, the other two vaccines that have uh, so far won approval from the FDA, the J&J vaccine were, as part of the production of the the vaccine itself, uh, it used some uh, fetal cells. These are not cells from a fetus, uh, but rather clone cells from fetuses that were aborted in the 1980s. I mean, you get into a bit of a, a ship of Theseus question as far as, you know, at what point does it stop being the cell of a fetus, you know, if it's cloned so many times? But that is the, the locus of, of the concern among um, some Catholics. And the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines did not use any clone cells from a fetus? So those Two other vaccines used um, in the testing of the vaccine, um, there were fetal cells used, but the difference there is with J&J, it was used in the production of the actual vaccine. So now, what's the position of the U.S. Council of Bishops and that of the Vatican? So uh, both of those um, organizations, which are, of course, massive leading organizations in the Roman Catholic faith, sort of gave a qualified um, okay on using the, the J&J shot, where they uh, recommended avoiding it if possible, uh, but basically said that you know it's morally acceptable to take uh, that vaccine. There is you know part of the faith about looking out for other people. The Pope did get vaccinated, right? Both um, the current pope and the former uh, Pope Benedict also got vaccinated. Are there organizations or cardinals or archbishops in the U.S. who are telling Catholics not to take the J&J shot? Some of these very large, influential uh, Catholic groups like the U.S. Council of Bishops sort of um, gave a qualified, okay, you know, recommended avoiding it if possible, but uh, but said it would be okay. There are a few church leaders who avoid stronger opposition to the J&J shot. Uh, one example is the Archdiocese of New Orleans. Yeah, they called the vaccine uh, morally compromised. I believe there's been a few other uh, U.S. leaders uh, as well. So now, can workers refuse the J&J vaccine on religious grounds? Yeah, the answer is yes. There are a few recognized ways that a worker can object to a workplace mandate, and one of those is uh, by raising a religious objection. There's a civil rights law, uh, it's known as Title VII, and it prohibits discrimination in the workplace along a whole bunch of different categories, race, sex, um, these sort of things, and religion is one of them. And the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which enforces Title VII, they have a very broad definition of, of religion. You know, it doesn't need to be belief in, in uh, a particular church or a, a god, but any firmly and sincerely held uh, moral or ethical belief. So in this instance, uh, the Catholic Church has had a, a pretty 
established opposition to abortion. You know, the, the church has voiced opposition to, you know, some forms of stem cell research because of the use of fetal cells tied to its concern about abortion or opposition to abortion. So in this instance, yes, Catholic workers would be able to raise a religious objection. How do courts define religious beliefs or how do they analyze religious beliefs? Does it have to be sincere religious beliefs? Generally speaking, uh, courts don't take a super deep look at uh, a professed religious belief. Uh, uh, there are some examples um, in history, uh, like with the draft uh, around the Vietnam War, where courts were more skeptical. Um, courts will sometimes be skeptical when it comes to um, take prisoners claiming religious beliefs for a reason to have a certain uh, privilege or uh, avoid a certain aspect of, of uh, their condition there in, in jail. But um, when it comes to a worker claiming a religious objection to something like a shot, um, you know, they might look to see, you know, is this plausible? You know, it's certainly plausible that uh, a Catholic would have an opposition to something that uses cloned fetal cells. And, um, yeah, if they sincerely believe it. But, again, they Courts are not in the business of of dissecting a person's religious beliefs and really drilling down in there. So then an employer just has to take the employee's word? The employee says, I have a religious objection to this, so the employer just has to accept that? In general, yes. I mean, if there's some reason uh, for the employer to doubt the worker, um, the EEOC, um, they recommend that employers, you know, be deferential to claims about faith beliefs uh, made by workers because the Title VII coverage of religion is very broad, um, and there may be religious practices that a worker is uh, referring to or religious beliefs that a worker is referring to that a, an employer just doesn't know about. You know, if it's totally unbelievable, you know, the flying spaghetti monster, that's sort of a different a kettle of fish, but, um, you know, if it's a Catholic uh, claiming opposition to a shot based on the use of fetal cells in the, the vaccine, um, yeah, that's the sort of thing that an employer would be advised to, to just take the worker at their word. What's an employer's defense? What kind of defenses can an employer raise? So employers, while they're generally expected to take workers at their word, when it comes to claims of uh, religious beliefs, they do have a very strong uh, defense, and that's basically would providing that accommodation, in this case, allowing a worker not to get the shot, would that cause an undue burden? And the U.S. Supreme Court in a 1977 decision came out with a very, very low bar for what it takes to show that it's an undue burden. The court used the word they use is a de minimis standard, which is a, a fancy Latin way of saying basically anything more than trivial is going to be an undue burden. That's an extremely strong defense for employers in this case. And that standard has been criticized? Yes, yes. It's been criticized uh, definitely by a lot of religious groups. Uh, the Justice Department has, in a case, Last term, I believe, um, they filed an amicus brief in a, a case that would have uh, reviewed that standard. The court ended up not taking the case. Um, there's been federal judges that have criticized the standard. 
again, that idea of the minimus of, of anything more than a, a trivial, anything more than a trifling burden on an employer. Uh, yeah, that's something that's, that's come under criticism. Um, in this instance with the J&J vaccine, um, since there are two other vaccines that have not received the same sort of criticism from some leaders in the, the Catholic Church, when we're talking about an accommodation to an objection to the J&J vaccine, what we're talking about is waiting until that worker could get a different shot. Um, so whether that's an undue burden, it's probably going to depend on the availability of the other shot. If they have to wait weeks, um, you know, that, that seems like it would be a lot easier for a, an employer to argue that's an undue burden, uh, rather than if it's just a day that they have to wait to let the worker get a, a shot that, uh, it doesn't conflict with their faith. This Supreme Court, particularly with Amy Coney Barrett on it, has been very protective of religious rights. Is there a case before the court that might take up this issue, the standard, and change it? So the court does have uh, at least one pending petition asking uh, them to review that question. Uh, That's not guaranteed that they'll take it up. But as I mentioned, there has been a lot of criticism from different areas about that standard. So it, it seems certainly plausible that that's something that the court could consider and review. Just generally, do we know the number of Americans who are who don't want to take a vaccine at all? There certainly have been polls that are taken periodically. I do know that there are certainly pockets of resistance. For example, uh, among nursing home employees, this is a worker population that's been provided the opportunity to have shots, and the refusal rate is approximately 60%. So in some areas, there still continues to be reluctance to take the vaccine. And again, in in some quarters, that reluctance seems to be growing. If you know, have you heard of any lawsuits where employers are being sued by employees because they want them to take the vaccine? Or is it just in the talking about stage right now? I know of at least one lawsuit that's been filed in federal court in which a worker objected to a workplace uh, vaccine mandate. That worker raised concerns about the fact that the vaccine was approved under the FDA's emergency use authorization, uh, which is definitely different than its normal process. As it sounds, it's used to get things out when it's an emergency situation. And there is some language in um, an FDA law that it's quite unclear. It does add some lack of clarity there that will likely get sorted out in the courts. And, and this lawsuit you know, will probably be the first example of that. Thanks, Robert. That's Bloomberg Law Reporter Robert Iafola. A new legal attack on the Biden administration's climate agenda from 12 Republican attorneys general challenges President Joe Biden's executive order addressing the social cost of greenhouse gases. The Trump administration slashed the values, assigning a lower cost to emissions, but an interagency working group restored Obama-era values last month, responding to Biden's January 20th executive order. The multi-state lawsuit led by Missouri says the move is an illegal expansion of federal regulatory power. Joining me is Pat Parento, a professor of environmental law at the Vermont Law School. 
Pat, explain why these states are suing. This is the one challenging Biden's executive order, which includes the requirement to reinstate the analysis of the social cost of carbon, which is, of course, a way of measuring the impacts of climate change from sea level rise and wildfires and other things. You know, it's a standard practice, obviously, for presidents to issue these executive orders. They're not final agency actions within the meaning of the Administrative Procedure Act. So the lawsuit is premature, and many of my colleagues in the legal academy have pointed out. The case will be dismissed. It was more of a political stunt than a serious lawsuit. None of these social cost of carbon analyses have even been done yet. They will be coming. I mean, you know, there's going to be a lot of rules. There's going to be the power plant rules and the fuel economy rules and the methane rules. There's going to be a lot of rulemaking coming up in the Biden administration in which this new $51 per ton number that Biden is ordering his agencies to use is going to become a subject of litigation. I'm sure of that down the road. But as of right now, there's no basis for these lawsuits. Did the Trump administration also use the social cost of carbon? Yes, it did. It lowered it down to $1, which is ridiculous. The Europeans, for example, they use figures up in the $80 range. And, you know, these figures do change over time because as the extreme events begin creating even more damaging storms like we've seen last year was the most damaging hurricane season on the Gulf Coast ever in the history of the United States. And the wildfires in California, the same thing, the most destructive wildfires we've ever seen. So the costs of climate change are increasing, and therefore that calculation that's being done will also increase. But the point is that there's another executive order that the conservatives love, and and that's the order that requires cost-benefit analysis for all of these rules. And and so if you're going to require cost-benefit analysis for environmental regulations, then you've got to do it right. And every economist would tell you that carbon pollution has a cost, as does all other kinds of pollution, and that you have to figure out a way to quantify that cost and include it in your analysis. Otherwise, your analysis is no good. It's not accurate. It doesn't follow good, sound economic analysis. So you need some kind of a model to develop that you can quantify these costs from carbon pollution. And that's what uh, the Biden administration is doing. I'm struggling to understand what the lawsuit is objecting to if the social cost of carbon was used by Trump and the Biden administration has just changed the numbers. I haven't read the actual details of the complaint. They are probably arguing that the number is arbitrary, that there wasn't an opportunity yet for any kind of public input or vetting of the new analysis. And, you know, those are the kinds of arguments that at the right time, in the right case, could be raised. And, you know, the Biden administration will have to defend the number that they've come up with. I don't think they're going to have much trouble defending it, but but they will have to defend it. They will have to say, well, this is what we included in the model as the assumptions for what kinds of damages we're trying to calculate here. We're looking at past extreme weather events, and we do have actual numbers and calculations for those. And we put those into the model, and then we put the science of what's happening with climate change into the model. How much sea level rise are we actually seeing? And the answer is we're seeing a lot more than the models were originally projecting. And how much flooding are we seeing in Miami? Well, just about every day and so forth. So Biden administration will have to have a record that demonstrates that the number they chose is reasonable. 
you know, the courts aren't going to dictate what the number should be, but they're going to demand that the administration justify the number that it picked. There's also a constitutional claim based on separation of powers? Yeah, this is what's called the non-delegation doctrine. And this is a real reach because usually that's a claim against the statutes that Congress enacts. And the most famous case, uh, and the opinion by the late Justice Scalia, none other, uh, is the American Trucking Association case in which Scalia wrote an opinion for a unanimous Supreme Court upholding EPA's authority to set air quality standards based only on public health, regardless of cost. And the question was, when Congress delegates to EPA that kind of, you know, incredibly powerful sweeping authority, is that actually giving EPA too much authority? That's what the non-delegation doctrine is all about, where Congress is abdicating its responsibility to set more defined policy guidance for the agency. But as I say, the court voted unanimously in American Trucking saying the delegation of authority to EPA to, quote, protect the public health and welfare, that language was enough to authorize EPA to say we are going to base air quality standards on public health data and, you know, the advice of the medical profession and so forth uh, in setting these numbers. And we're not going to take into account How much is it going to cost to protect the public health? So the idea that now uh, these states that have challenged Biden's executive order, that's not even legislation. That's just Biden telling his agencies, this is the way in which I I want you to calculate these costs. So it isn't even a delegation of authority from Congress. It's Biden saying, this is how I want my administration to conduct a proper economic analysis of the rules that we're adopting. So I don't think this non-delegation doctrine has any legs at all in challenging Biden's order. Former President Trump was the king of executive orders. How did challenges against his orders, his executive orders, fare in court? Well, the one that did break through was the travel ban, but that one actually had immediate impacts on people. If you remember, people were stuck in airports all over the world. Some, even even in some cases, Americans, they may have been of multiple, you know, multi-ethnic, uh, you know, origin, but they were American citizens, couldn't even get back to the country. So in those cases, the courts are saying, where an executive order like that has immediate impact, injury to individuals who can come to court and swear under oath, of course, that they are being impacted by this order, that's a different case altogether. But in the other kinds of executive orders where there wasn't that kind of immediate injury or impact from the order, the courts would routinely reject challenges to those kinds of orders. The government's defense, the go-to defense, is the boilerplate language in the executive order at the bottom? Yeah, these modern executive orders all include a provision saying there are no rights or responsibilities created by this order. It is not enforceable in court. And the courts, by and large, have accepted that and basically said, that's right. These orders, the courts view them as housekeeping orders. You know, the president of the executive branch, these are instructions to his cabinet officers for how he wants his administration to conduct business. And you'll notice in this executive order and in other orders, there's always a line that says this, the direction is always consistent with statutory authority. In other words, Executive orders can't amend legislation and they can't contradict, you know, the direction from Congress. 
But because Congress always gives agencies an awful lot of discretion, and these statutes contain very broad, general, and, and oftentimes ambiguous language, there's a lot of interpretation that has to happen. And these executive orders are directions to the agencies as to how they should exercise their discretion consistent with the statutory authority. So the orders themselves aren't making new law. They aren't creating new rules. They're telling the agencies, these are the kinds of policies, of course, I want you to consider and incorporate. And also, in the case of social cost of carbon, this is the procedure. This is the process that I want you to follow. And this social cost of carbon model that they used was developed by 17 agencies. So it's a, it's a large interagency working group comprised of economists and technical people. Uh, so it isn't even just the White House dictating this particular number. It's the White House saying this agency, interagency working group should be reestablished. Trump had abolished it, should be reestablished, and it should be the one to go to to look for guidance on how to do this. Since everyone seems to agree that this is not this lawsuit is not going to survive, is it then a publicity stunt, sort of? Yeah, I, I would call it a publicity stunt. It's not all of the states that were attacking the Obama administration's environmental rules and climate rules, but it's a, a lot of the same states. They're all Republican-controlled state uh, attorneys general that are suing. And, I mean, I, I guess they just want some, some publicity and some attention. And, and it's a warning shot, you know, as well. I mean, they, they probably realize in their heart of hearts that this case isn't going to survive. But it's a warning shot to the Biden administration of what's going to be coming. So that's fine. That seems to be the era we're in, where it's partisan warfare, you know, not conducting the public's business necessarily in a, in a very rational way. But it is what it is. That's the kind of world we're living in. I was very surprised because Texas was the first state to sue the Biden administration. Texas led so many of the lawsuits against the Obama administration, and Texas is nowhere to be found in this lawsuit. Yeah, neither is West Virginia, which surprised a lot of people because Patrick Morrissey, the attorney general of West Virginia, led the charge. He and Scott Pruitt, of course, from Oklahoma, led the charge against the Obama rules. And they didn't join. And that might that might actually reflect that they looked at this case and said, this is not a good case. We don't need to be jumping the gun here. We're going to have plenty of opportunities to sue Biden. Let's pick our target uh, for cases that have a better chance. Turning to another environmental issue, I think most environmentalists breathed a sigh of relief when Joe Biden became president because of his environmental concerns. But now the Biden administration is throwing its legal weight behind the Penn East pipeline in a high-stakes Supreme Court case that could affect natural gas projects across the U.S. The Justice Department is urging the high court to overturn a ruling that had blocked Penn East from using federal eminent domain authority to take New Jersey land along the $1 billion project's route. So this came as a surprise to a lot of people, especially because one of Biden's first moves was to stop the Keystone XL pipeline. So why do you think the administration is backing the Penn East pipeline at the Supreme Court? Oh, yeah, that's an interesting one, isn't it? So, you know, eminent domain authority can be used for good or bad, I guess, from from an environmental standpoint. I think one of the concerns the administration has is what if we wanted uh, to approve a solar array uh, or a wind farm uh, or an offshore wind project, uh, you know, and the states were, were trying to oppose that. 
that may be some of the concern here is that they, they want the authority to be able to install the infrastructure for the clean energy economy they want to build. If that's the case, if that's the, the, the thinking behind the Biden administration's support for condemning state land to build an interstate pipeline, uh, what I would say is a better approach would be to, you know, get, you'd have to get legislation to do this, but to have a, a statute that authorizes the use of eminent domain, but puts limits on it. And frankly, you could make an argument now, and, and of course, consistent with the Biden administration's statement that we're in a climate crisis, you could make an argument that eminent domain should not be used to construct further fossil fuel infrastructure because we can't use it. All the science is telling us you're not going to be able to be using interstate gas pipelines for the next 30 or 40 or 50 years, which is what they require to repay the, the tremendous capital costs to build them. These are multi-billion dollar projects we're talking about. You don't build those things and then operate them, you know, for five or 10 years. And the science is telling us that's all we've got, basically, to get serious about decarbonizing the energy sector, the transportation sector, and other sectors. So you could deploy eminent domain more strategically to advantage clean energy and not dirty energy. But that's not what we have right now. The, the Natural Gas Act doesn't distinguish, of course, between you know good projects and bad projects. It authorizes eminent domain for all gas pipeline projects. So the Biden administration is sticking with the current status of the law of eminent domain because I think it wants to use it. For example, they've got a big push to electrify the transportation system. You know, to build the kind of clean energy system we need, for example, for electric vehicles, you need a lot of charging stations all over the country deployed in strategic locations so that people can quickly recharge their cars wherever they are. And that's a massive, almost like interstate highway system requirement. The same thing with, with the grids, the uh, electricity grids. We saw what happened in Texas, obviously, lots of reasons for that. But the, the lesson is that our grid system is too vulnerable to extreme weather. It needs to be weatherized. We need more microgrids, more distributed energy, so we're not reliant on you know single uh, grid systems that can go down in extreme weather events, whether they be heat or rain or storms or whatever whatever the extreme weather is. And again, you know that's going to mean having to build new structures, infrastructure for this clean energy economy. And it's going to mean having to overcome opposition, you know, not in my backyard opposition, opposition from states. You might have to actually condemn state-owned land in order to build some of these energy systems. So that's what's in the background here with eminent domain. As I say, it can be used to promote clean energy or to promote fossil fuel energy. And the question is, how are we going to decide which forms of energy we really want to prioritize. What is the Biden administration doing as far as endangered species? For endangered species, they're setting about reversing Trump's rules, which revise all of the protections for endangered species, including things like not protecting species that are threatened from what is called take, which is any kind of form of harm, killing, or injuring. There's a, a rulemaking underway to reverse the Trump rules and replace them with more protective rules for endangered species. And the Biden administration has also 
revoked the rule that the Trump administration adopted under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which basically said unless you can prove that someone intentionally is killing birds, there's no violation of that act. And the problem with that is a lot of the deaths to migratory birds occur from things like oil pits in the oil and gas industry around the country. And these birds are attracted, of course, to what looks like water, but it's toxic to them. And believe it or not, there are millions of birds killed every year from contact with, with that kind of industrial operation. So restoring protection for migratory birds is important because that will prevent a lot of these birds from becoming endangered. And that's the real strategy with wildlife conservation, obviously, is to protect the species that are still viable and relatively healthy so that they don't become endangered. Thanks, Pat. That's Professor Pat Parento of the Vermont Law School. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.